This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. I'm excited today for the opportunity to wade into the next uh, part of our series, Too Hot to Handle. I want to invite us to pray for our time today in the Word uh, before we dig in, though. All right, will you bow your heads with me? Father, we want to hand this over to you. Lord, we want to come under your authority as your children, as your followers, to listen to what your Word has to say. So God, we ask that we would surrender, we would uh, look to you to speak to us through your word, that we would uh, be listening for where it is that your Holy Spirit would have something for us. Not for the person next to us, not for uh, the, the neighbor we know down the block, but for us. God, what are you saying to us this morning? We invite you to speak. We thank you in advance for your word, and we receive it with grateful hearts. Amen. It was uh, April 18th, 2017. I was driving a U-Haul truck, bumping down the road uh, from York, Pennsylvania, to our new home. And I I just gotten off uh, 43 there. I was driving down uh, 32. And I was about to come into Port Washington then, you know, for the first time. This was going to be my first impression of Port Washington. We had gotten a townhouse uh, at sight unseen that we were going to be renting. Uh, We were pulling in towards this. And I noticed something off to the right-hand side of the road, big old sign. And it said in big red letters, Trump. And being new to the area, I thought to myself, oh yeah, that's right. Uh, Wisconsin voted for a Republican, uh, Republican uh, presidential candidate for the first time in like forever. And as I got closer to the sign, though, I noticed something else. I noticed that uh, faded, but still there, that someone had uh, spray-painted a certain four-letter word, starting with F, across the top of the sign. I thought, oh yeah, that's the tension that we're in. That's the anger that's swirling around us. And friends, four years later, that image in my mind still perfectly captures the tension that we're facing as a people. And as the church, the body of Christ, we're far from immune to that tension, right? Among Christians, the tension of disagreement between what they think of this candidate and that, this policy and that policy, this issue and that issue, is running very high. And it's deeply affecting the way that we look at, the way we speak to, the way we treat one another. So gang, this is a serious issue. It needs to be addressed, doesn't it? It does. Right in here. After all, 1 John 4, 20-21 says this, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. 
For he who does not love his brother who he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now, I I can imagine you hearing that this morning and sitting back and and thinking to yourself, listen, Pastor John, I don't hate somebody who disagrees with me politically. Really, I don't hate them. I just think they're an idiot, you know? (laughs) Right? Well, may I humbly remind all of us this morning Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5. But I say to you, if you are even angry with someone, you're subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you're in danger of being brought to the court. If you curse someone, you're in danger of the fires of hell. Friends, the way we look at, the way we speak to, the way we treat one another is incredibly important to God and to our Christian Witness. Amen? So this morning, we are going to take up the important question. How do I love Christians with different politics? How do I love Christians with different politics? How do I love that brother or sister that disagrees with me? That is a difficult issue. And somehow, I doubt that I'm the only one struggling with that tension this morning, struggling to figure out how to do that well. And so in humility, my desire this morning is to raise the question and to offer us wisdom from the Word of God on how to love a Christian with different politics. To do that this morning, I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse 8. There are several passages of Scripture that speak to this issue, but as I prayed and I studied, I believe that the passage we're going to look at this morning with its context being set right after the Apostle Paul's words on government and right before his word on how to deal with having a difference of opinion, that this passage right here will prove the most helpful to our present moment. And as we present our question of how to love to this text, we're going to walk away this morning with three very clear applications of how we are to love other Christians. And then as it spirals out from there, how we are to even love others in general that we disagree with. As we begin to work through this text, I do want to say that, you know, this morning, if if you're somewhere in here and you don't yet have a a personal relationship with Jesus, you're not yet one of his followers, um, I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that you're here. Because although we don't carry out this call to love each other perfectly, in fact, we can royally fail at it at times, it is our aim. It is our goal. And so this morning in some small way, I hope to offer you a a window into the way that the people of God are called to treat one another in the midst of disagreement. So take a look together with me at verse 8 of this chapter. It says this, Owe no one anything 
except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. All right, now pause there. Take a note here. This passage is not about credit cards. All right, when, when the Apostle Paul says, oh, no one anything, he's not talking about credit cards. Rather, he's setting up the kind of obligation as in an ongoing commitment that a Christian is to have, which is to have love for each other. Love for one another is to be this kind of ongoing commitment, this never-ending project, because it perfectly fulfills all that God has commanded. His moral law of what is right and what is wrong in this case. And if you haven't before, I want you to take note of the biblical definition of love. Write it down, that love, biblically, is to pursue someone else's highest good. To pursue someone else's highest good. Again, that's, that's not like the world's definition that love is love, or that love is acceptance, or that love is a feeling you fall into and fall out of. They're, they're not the same. The command to love is shown then practically here in how to live it out. And it clearly, by the way, falls into step with Jesus' words and the book of Leviticus' words on loving our neighbor. Paul, then, he concludes this part where he sums up the, in the last verse. And he says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So let's begin to bring our question to this here. Practically, how do I love? How specifically do I love a Christian with different politics? We know we're supposed to do that, but how? Well, here's where we have to start. First, be grounded in the truth of what is right and wrong. First, be grounded in the truth of what is right and wrong. You and I need to soak in the commands of Scripture so that we know where the boundary lines are, so we know where we are to go and where we aren't to go in our lives with how we see, with how we speak to, and how we treat, how we act towards other Christians, including the ones we disagree with. So the commands of Scripture give you and I the needed standards to calibrate, if you will, our consciences so that we can also then humbly hold up as a truth with one another. That happens only as we are grounded, as we are rooted, as we're established, as we're thoroughly soaked in the commands of Scripture. And that's what Paul's calling for here. Let's get right down to the meat of the passage. Where does the Apostle Paul take this idea of love, this idea of loving our neighbor, where does he take it? One of the curious aspects of this passage to me is this. You see that for all of this call to love one another, which is an action verb stated in the positive sense of what you are called, what you are supposed to go and do, 
All of the examples of loving others are set in the negative sense. They're all in the sense of what you are not supposed to go and do. The four commands that Paul listed here, these would have been obvious examples to everybody, what you're not supposed to do, that first having sex with someone who's not your spouse isn't loving. That's not pursuing their highest good. That second, willfully and unlawfully taking an innocent life isn't loving. That third, taking something that doesn't belong to you without permission isn't loving. That fourth, wanting what someone else possesses isn't loving. It ends with this catch-all statement, right? That not obeying any of the other commands of God that he's laid out of what to do and what not to do towards someone else, you guessed it, isn't loving. The reason why you are to do these commands and why you're to not do certain things and are to do other things is to be out of love. Every command of God is rooted in love. So the beginning point of that love, that pursuit then, here, is to stop wronging your neighbor. It's to stop sinning against them. And this reality of loving others is echoed throughout Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 6, which is this passage, a famous passage, but it's a passage that's actually focused on the kind of love that Christians are to have towards one another. That passage says this, it, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love removes itself from wrongdoing, with, from any kind of sinning against others. Then friends, don't underestimate the value of simply not wronging those who disagree with you politically. This matters. This is an important starting point for pursuing the highest good for someone else. And when you begin there, When you begin to soak in those commands of what God has said, it actually becomes incredibly practical. So practical that when some political pundit is attempting to goad you and I into wanting revenge after the incidents of Kenosha or anywhere else, we resist that temptation in the name of Jesus because Romans 12, 19 says, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Or so that when you see someone's Facebook post that's hurtful, prideful, shaming, you not only resist the temptation to retaliate, you also refuse to let bitterness in your heart towards them because you've soaked in God's commands. And you know that Hebrews 12.15 says to not allow any bitter root to grow up among us. Or especially, most especially, when we sin and we give in to the temptation to hate or to gossip or to slander, we resist the temptation to excuse it, to let ourselves off the hook. Instead, we're quick to repent for it. Friends, that's how being grounded in the truth of what is right and what is wrong shows love to someone we disagree with. It starts by not sinning against them. Listen, you may or may not have lots of in-person interactions right now with somebody who disagrees with you politically. But if you are being grounded in the truth, it will work towards calibrating your conscience to keep you from wronging them with how you see them. And then, yes, with how you speak to them and act towards them. That is the beginning point of our love here. But do you want to know where the real problem lies? 
Do you know where, do you want to know where, where, where pursuing the best, pursuing the highest good for another Christian that we disagree with really lies? It's with losing. We fear that our position or party might lose to the point where we are willing to compromise on God's commandments. We have bought into the fever-pitched voices of the election that we are so fearful of losing, we are willing to compromise on what God has said. Which is why, when we address the issue of loving someone we disagree with, we need to look at the second application here. See, Paul has more to say about this ongoing commitment to loving another. Verse 11, the apostle Paul moves on. He says this. He says, besides... As in, besides the conclusion that love fulfills the commands of God, there's something more. He says, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its sinful desires. Here, the idea of night and day are being used as illustrations for our current state of being as a follower of Jesus in a broken and sinful world. See, while looking forward to Christ's return and his restoration of all things, that's when we consider our question of how to love a Christian who has, different, has a different set of politics, that this understanding actually becomes pivotal because it deals with our true hope and ergo our true fears. Listen, to love a Christian we disagree with politically it means that we must together, we must keep a corporate perspective of, a, of the real hope, to keep a corporate perspective of the real hope. If we get lost in the lesser hopes of winning an election, we will fear loving those Christians we disagree with. Because after all, if we help them, if we love them, if we care about them, the other side might win. And that would have serious consequences. But we only think that way and fear that when we have lost our corporate perspective of the real hope, when we have only then given in to the fear, some other fear of losing, rather than the only fear that is a Christian's, which is fear of God himself. Listen, I don't want to see our nation fall apart in November. I don't. And I encourage all of you to be great citizens, to be engaged, to be serving, to be voting. But my great hope is not in our nation. My hope is in Jesus' return only. That's my great hope, and that's ours too. That's our great hope, and that is what frees us to love even with someone we disagree with, even when we disagree with them strongly on important issues, even in disagreement. I can pursue the highest good for someone else by obeying God's commands towards them, and you can as well. That's the love that we're called to, and we're freed to do when our hope, when your hope, is in perspective. And the corporate hope 
There's a corporate side to this application. Notice what the, how the passage is phrased. Look back at it. Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. So then let us cast off works of darkness. Let us walk properly. This isn't only your hope, your personal hope. This is our hope. This is our corporate hope together. And listen, gang, with Christians that you disagree with here, you need to work backwards with them. You need to work backwards from our corporate hope of Jesus' return. And then we can point to that Christian. We can point to them and we can say, listen, we may disagree here, but we share a common ground. We can work backwards with leaders, policies, and issues, keeping all of our hopes in perspective so that our conversations, our actions are all set in the context that Jesus is returning, that his arrival is imminent, that we don't have to worry whether or not it's going to happen. If we don't keep this corporate perspective, then we will join the fever-pitched voices of the world that see history as hanging in the balance of November 3rd rather than holding the real and certain hope that history is moving through these pains and towards a conclusion. We're moving towards a conclusion of Christ's return. That should be the frequent hope that's on our lips. One incredible example of these first two applications It can be seen in Jesus and his original 12 disciples. The original 12. I'm grateful to Jonathan Lehman and Andy Nacelli for pointing it out to me. Did you know that Jesus called two men from two opposite political backgrounds to be part of his disciples? Did you know that? See, on one hand, he called Matthew, the former tax collector who had sided with the Romans in their occupation. And on the other hand, he called Simon the Zealot. The Zealots were committed to the overthrow of the Roman occupation. How could Jesus call two men from two opposite sides of a spectrum to himself? You couldn't get a more polar opposite set of views on then a huge range of issues that would have resulted. And yet Jesus did. Yet Jesus and his teachings would have confronted the ideas of both of these men and their parties. That first defrauding people out of their money, as the tax collectors did frequently, was wrong. But that also not rendering unto Caesar what was Caesar and Caesar's, in other words, not paying your taxes that supported the occupying force, was also wrong. Both were called as followers of Jesus to be grounded in the truth, not as their party saw it, but as Jesus taught it. Furthermore, as history records, the zealots did eventually overthrow Roman occupation for a time before Rome came back in and utterly destroyed everyone, everything, scattering the people. Listen, political decisions and policy positions have major consequences and they are not all equal. They are not all equal, and they have major consequences. But the church and the hope of Christ's return didn't end 
It moves on. It didn't end with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD because the church wasn't founded on the hope of any one nation. And even if the fall of that nation changed the course of history, our hope is founded still on something that moves beyond. It's founded on the hope of Jesus and his return. So friends, be careful how much of your hope you place on the shaky world of politics. Be careful. Guard your heart. But keep a great hope, even with those you disagree with who are followers of Jesus, in the return of Jesus. For when he will set everything right, doing so will grow your love towards them and with them, even if you disagree with them. Now Paul He's going to tie this hope to one more thing. Love that's not wronging people because it's grounded in the truth. It's seeing the nearness of Christ's return, which provides for the corporate hope that motivates that love. That means something. Look back at verse 12 with me. Second sentence there. So then let us cast off works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Catch the line of thinking here. Paul is saying, look at the time. Night is almost over. Daylight is on the horizon here. It's almost here. In other words, Christ's return, it's imminent, it's coming for sure. And even though it's still dark, it's still a sinful, messed up, broken world, even though it's dark, walk properly as if it's daytime. It's still dark, walk properly as if it's daytime, and make no provision for the flesh. Remember, friends, it wasn't all that long ago that we didn't have street lights and night lights and flashlights. Right? When you walked in the dark even when you still walk in the dark. You walk hesitantly, right? You, you bump into things, right? You're scared of hitting your head and tripping and stubbing your toe or, worst of all, parents, stepping on Legos. You know, that's, you couldn't get something more painful. But Paul's point here is that because of Christ's return, you're to walk in the light so that you can see what's, what tripping in the darkness looks like. It looks like his list here. This is what tripping looks like. Orgies, drunkenness, sexual immorality, sensuality, quarreling, and jealousy. In other words, it looks like ignoring the truth of what God has said is right and wrong and doing your own thing. But that's not how we're to operate. You and I are to walk properly and leave the other stuff behind and never to make room for it. Now, how does that help me with our question How does that help us to love a Christian with different politics? Here's how. By having self-control. By having self-control. How can I love them? Exercise self-control. If you look around at the world today, people who are disagreeing politically, if you look at them for very long, you'd think that they were in that old action film, The Untouchables. Remember that one? Remember that scene where Sean Connery is talking to Kevin Costner? They're, they're sitting in the pew of the, of the church talking about how to take down Al Capone. And Sean Connery says this. He says, here's how you get him. 
He pulls a knife, you pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way. (laughs) Friends, that's what it feels like out there. That's the world's way. That's not our way. That's not our way. We exercise self-control, upholding the truth of what is right and what is wrong, giving permission to nothing and no one else. It's how we're to operate. That's the call of this text, that your actions and my actions, that the way you carry yourself and the way I carry myself should resemble in our character the way that we would act as if Christ had already returned. We walk properly as in the daytime, even though it's still night. That's how we are to treat Christians we disagree with, as if Jesus is already here. So exercise self-control in the way you look at, in the way you speak to, in the way you act towards someone who disagrees with you. Listen, real practically, treat them the way you'd want to be treated. Do you want people to make assumptions about your motives? Do you want people to blame you for something your ancestor or someone else did? No. Do you want people to ask you questions and peacefully share with you their reasoning, even if it's different? Yes. So brothers and sisters, exercise self-control and don't leave room for anything else. And just one more example, because I know this can be a struggle for us. I can remember almost uh, 10 years ago being a a youth pastor out in the West Coast. And uh, it seemed like Everybody that I would talk to, it just seemed like I, I constantly had all these disagreements, right? And just welling up inside, you know, in that conflict, that struggle, like you're having that conversation. Ten years ago, I mean, there was a time when, when this pastor was even younger and even more eager and dogmatic than I am now, okay? There was that time. And I remember in those disagreements, listening to people and just feeling this burden of setting them straight. You know that, you know that burden? Well, thankfully, an older pastor that was mentoring me, he shared a little secret. He said, John, listening isn't the same as agreeing. Listening and agreement are two different things. I've tried to hold on to that. See, loving someone you disagree with doesn't mean acceptance. It means not wronging them. Listen, When we disagree, when it comes to the listening aspect, it doesn't mean agreement. It means self-control. Listen well. And see, as Paul lays out here, he says, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That means to give no uh, no permission. Provision here is the idea of no permission, no support, no plan for sin, no provision, no room. But some of us, We're giving into that temptation. We're giving ourselves and others permission to do things the Chicago way. But when we drop self-control, we will always pick up the world's way. But as a follower of Jesus, our way is not the world's way. Our way is the way of love, grounded in the truth of what is right and wrong as God has set forth, motivated by the hope of his soon return, It calls us to walk properly, to be self-controlled, rather than making room for revenge, for slander, for gossip, rage, and the rest of it. 
So church, this is where we stand. We are standing in the broken, sinful, messy world. This is our way, though, of loving others that we disagree with. We don't win. We don't overcome evil with evil. We overcome evil with good. That's the Jesus way. We stand rooted in love for one another beyond political disagreements precisely because Jesus is returning. And that 2,000 years ago, when he came, he lived a perfect life and died the death that we deserved. He laid down his life for his enemies. He laid down his life for you and I who disagreed with him in every way imaginable. And now he calls you and I to do the same. He calls you and I to lay down our life and to love others the way that he loved. That's our aim. And when we fall short, he is faithful and perfectly picks us up as he loves us, brushes us off, and shows us again how to walk in the light.